I, we are going to jump into part two of our series today, Shoulder of Giants. Before we do, I'm going to mention a couple of things happening in the life of our church. First is more of a logistical side, but I want to bring clarity. Uh, many of you probably heard the news this week uh, that the Center for Disease Control uh, came out and said if you're fully vaccinated, as many of you are in this room, um, then you no longer need to wear a mask. Uh, and I want to bring clarity to that because I know um, across the country, there's been a little bit of like confusion, like, okay, well, does that mean I cannot wear a mask now? And um, here's, here's what I'll say is that right now, um, in Montgomery County, where we are right now, it is still a county order to wear a mask indoors. Uh, now, in two weeks, the county is going to be, right now, the plan is because they have reached their goal. Uh, in two weeks, half of this county that we're in will reach uh, full vaccination, uh, which they will lift all of the county restrictions. Uh, and then we will then fall in line with the state restrictions. Uh, so I want you to know this, that that's uh, in two weeks. Uh, but before then, uh, myself, some of our leaders, and a board member this week are going to be discussing a plan that we'll clearly communicate. Uh, from day one that we started this church, I want you to know this. Your spiritual, emotional, and physical health is a priority uh, and will always be. So we wanna, we'll be clear on our plans uh, just to make sure you're clear. Um, and we will also, because we are here gathering on a Hilton property, we will, we will fall in line with whatever Hilton is asking us to do. Uh, so we can keep loving our community and loving our neighbors well. Amen? Amen? Sound good? So we'll be clear. It'll be coming out. I just wanted to mention that in case any of you were wondering any sort of clarity around that. We're going to make sure we bring uh, clarity in the coming weeks as we get closer to that date. Uh, one of the things I'll mention is next Sunday, the 23rd, we, uh, there's an organization called One Child that we have financially partnered with as a church through your generosity. Uh, they're an incredible organization. I believe they are in over 40 countries and they partner with local churches in areas where they're facing significant economic poverty uh, and difficulty. And what they do is they partner with local churches, and they have a child sponsorship where you can sponsor children, uh, providing uh, nutrition, health care, education, of course, them hearing the gospel. And uh, I'm excited because next Sunday, uh, one of the representatives is going to be here, actually an ind uh, individual who I took a trip with, uh, to see one of their what they call hope centers last year, right before the pandemic. And uh, we're going to be partnering with one of their hope centers, one of their local churches in Haiti. Uh, and so we're going to be, you're going to be hearing all about that next Sunday. Then after service, here in Bethesda, out in the lobby, you'll have an opportunity uh, to sponsor a child. Um, I believe uh, each sponsorship is $37 a month, which provides for them nutrition, health care, education, and they get to hear the gospel. And also, you have an opportunity to even give more if you would like to support uh, even more children. Uh, so there'll be an opportunity here in the lobby right after service. And then we'll have a link online that you can uh, take part in well. But be praying about if God would have you be a part of that next week as we take a next step in our partnership uh, with One Child. It's going to be a great, great Sunday. And then right after service today, we are having next step, step one. Uh, if you want to find out what it means to make Catalyst your home church, to be a member here, how you can get connected uh, after service, right at our guest services area, it's less than 30 minutes. Uh, children's ministry carries over. We'll have a, one of our team members there who can take you to our uh, on the third floor uh, for next steps. We'd love to see you there. But with that said, I want to dive in today, and uh, we are in part two of our Shoulder of Giant series. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and to hear the message. Christina brought a great message 
uh, as she spoke on the uh, Sarah uh, out of the book of Genesis and her life. And what we're doing in this series, look at the lives of women of faith in Scripture and principles that we can glean from their life on how we can live a life uh, of faith. And we can experience all that God has for us. And today I'm excited because we're going to be looking at a woman by the name of Ruth. And uh, Ruth is someone who, uh, what I love about her story is, is kind of in a long story short, um, she is facing a, a pretty dire situation. Uh, she is a, a widow uh, in a land that is not her own and living in poverty. Um, really, the, the cultural prognosis of her life is very negative. Um, but through her faithfulness to God, um, God is incredibly faithful to her, and God does incredible things in and through her life that still is blessing us today. And we're going to look at her, her life today and really draw some principles about what we can glean. She truly is a giant of our faith and what we can learn from her to stand on the shoulders uh, of this uh, woman of faith. But let's pray before we dive into the word. Father, we thank you today for your word. I pray that you would... Lord, speak through me today, God, that your word truly a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. God, we just, we posture our heart and mind to receive from you today, God. We love you, we honor you, in Jesus' name. How powerful was worship, by the way, this morning? Anybody else? You could just worship another two hours. There's something about being in the presence of God. If you don't know, we, we gather, and the church has gathered uh, since its inception around the presence of God. Jesus himself said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. God is actually in our midst right now. Uh, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And uh, we gather to worship Jesus. And it's always so good. There's something powerful about worshiping together. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. But Ruth, Ruth is an, an inter interesting uh, woman. She is, uh, if you're kind of into this, uh, I kind of nerd out. I could talk for several hours about all of the context and the history around her life, but I won't bore you with details, but I will say a few things. She is the only uh, non-Jewish person who has a book of the Bible named after her. Uh, she is a Moabite. The Moabites at that time and place were actually Israel's enemies. Um, I think God has a sense of humor. Uh, and she's only one of two women who have a book of the Bible named after her, and the other one is Esther. Uh, and Ruth is, is quite an intriguing character. And to give context to what we're going to pick up, it's four chapters. I would encourage you to read the book. This You can probably read the entire book in about 20 minutes, uh, first, Ruth 1 through 4. And Ruth 1 picks up Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, and uh, her husband Elimelech. To give context, it was in the time of Judges. Uh, this was a time when there was a lack of leadership in Israel. Uh, and there was a famine in the land. So there was national crises without national leader, without solid leadership. So it was a lot of instability. And Elimelech did something that was frowned upon. He took his family and he fled to Moab. And why was it frowned upon? Because Moab was the, again, the enemies of the Israelites. Um, so he goes to Moab. He has two sons with Naomi and their sons married two Moabite women. Again, in, in Israel at the time, that would have been a no-no. Uh, and the women's name were Ophrah, not Oprah, similar Oprah's a wonderful woman. Uh, Ophrah and Ruth. So they marry their two sons. Uh, the two sons and Elimelech uh, pass away. And Naomi gets word that the famine in Israel is no more. That the harvest has come back. There's food. There's, in a modern context, the economy has bounced back. There's employment. There's opportunity. 
So she decides, I want to go back to Bethlehem. And she begins to urge her two daughter-in-laws to not go with her. And I'm going to explain more why. And uh, let's look here in Ruth 1, verse 11. I'm going to read pieces of, of Scripture throughout these four chapters um, and kind of summarize a lot of it. But it says this in verse 11. Naomi said, uh, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I, I'm not going to have any more sons who could become your husbands. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Here we see is that Naomi takes this moment, this one kind of snapshot of a hard season, and she looks at it and says, oh, God has forgotten about me, or where is God? And maybe if you're here today and you even were wondering, God, where are you in this situation? You can relate to Naomi. And she, is, she even kind of several times in the book refers to feeling bitter, just feeling frustrated, feeling upset with God. Verse 14 says, At this they, Ophrah and Ruth, wept aloud. Then Ophrah uh, kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Let me give context. It would have been common uh, in that culture, mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws had tense relationships. They weren't the best of friends. Um, So if some of you are like, I don't like my mother-in-law either, well, you're welcome there. Um, So (laughs) some are like, I knew I liked this church. Um, uh, True story. It was was tense. Like even if, if her husband was still living, they would not get along. Like, the mother-in-law did not come to the wedding shower. Like, she didn't come pick out the dress. She showed up late to the wedding. Come on. Like, it was just, it was just tense. It was tense. So, and, o- and, Ofer and, and Ruth were young. So, when Ophrah left, that was expected because she was young. And the most marginalized and oppressed group of people in Israel were widows, especially widows who were immigrants. Uh, widows were, in that culture, You women would receive their financial uh, security and physical security from their husbands. So when, when they were widowed, they, were, they lacked that. So Ophrah and Ruth were young, so it was expected. You would go back to Moab, you would meet a Moabite man, you would remarry and have a great life. Uh, so Ophrah did what was expected, but Ruth, the Bible says, clung to Naomi. Ruth from the get-go demonstrated a different character than Naomi. We're going we're to draw some principles from Ruth's life that we can apply to our own life uh, today that we see in Scripture, uh, that are scriptural qualities that we see that God is asking each one of us to take hold of. Here's the first one, and that's this, that steadfast, Ruth had, and we are called to have, steadfast faithfulness to God and God's people. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you, speaking to Naomi. Or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. In this moment, Ruth declares faith in the God of Israel. Ruth declares her commitment to the God of Israel in this moment, a profound moment, because here was even Naomi who grew up following the God of Israel, and she's bitter about it, saying, he's turned his hand on me. And Ruth is saying, I am committing my faithfulness to her. Ruth's faithfulness to God was so, so apparent that even in verse in, in the second chapter, someone notices it, and they, they comment on how faithful you are to God. You know you're living in accordance to God's word and God's ways when someone can tell. But that's a good barometer for all of us to see how well we're following God. Would those closest to us see a difference in us? 
But they say, man, by your character, by your nature, how kind you are, how generous you are, how loving you are, there's something different about you. There was something different about, about Ruth. It reminds me of Hebrews 10.23. The author of Hebrews says this, speaking to the, church, to, uh, to, uh, uh, the Hebrews, saying, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. He's, I love that word, unswervingly. See, to give context to what was happening at that time, there were different cultural philosophies and social theories and ideologies that were, that were kind of around, and, and people were getting literally kind of drawn away from the faith. In fact, we live in a culture now where there are many political ideologies, social theories, cultural philosophies, and all, all of them align with the word of God. And here's what he's encouraging. And here's the encouragement for us that in those moments, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're here kicking the tire, if you're just curious about God, you can, you can tune this out. But if you're a follower of Christ, listen, here's the encouragement for you. Hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Hold unswervingly to your faith. Cultural philosophies will come and go. Political ideologies, there's a new one every month. Social theories, they'll keep coming up. But two chapters later in Hebrews, he says all the kingdoms of this world will be shaken. As we saw this year, governments shaken, economies shaken, healthcare systems shaken. But he says there's one kingdom that'll never be shaken. It's the kingdom of God. And as the people of God, we hold unswerving. It's like when there's a hurricane around you, you grab onto that which is sturdy. Can I tell you, as people of God, we should respond differently than the world does to unstable times because we know how it ends. We know King Jesus is coming back. We know his kingdom knows no end. We know there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We know that we'll have eternal life with him. Therefore... When things are unstable, therefore, when the economy crashes, therefore, when there's political instability, therefore, when there's another pandemic, we have hope that hope is in Jesus. I'm trying to stir our faith because I believe as the people of God, the people of our communities and our culture, they're looking for something different. And the wealthy and the healthy and all of us were, were affected by this past year. Because things were shaken, and they're still being shaken. This isn't, this isn't going to, if you read the scriptures, things do not get better. They become more unstable. But we represent a different kingdom. We serve a different king, and his name is Jesus. Hold unswervingly. You know what that, that means is when we're not swayed by cultural. And let me just give you some practical. If you're hearing a, a, a fresh cultural philosophy or political ideology, ask yourself, what does God's word say about this? What, what, what does God's word say about this issue? Because God's word has a lot to say about a lot of things. And we can be so easily swayed and moved the scripture, James, even talks about not, not being uncertain. Don't be unstable, but, but stabilize yourself. Grab hold of that which is, which is stable, which is the kingdom of God. Remain faithful. I love in Colossians 4, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. You know that word devote means? To have a steadfast perseverance. Do you know when you need to persevere? When you don't want to do something. You don't got to persevere when it's easy. Come on, I never have to persevere through some ice cream. Come on, somebody. 
How many of you know? Sign your boy up. Yes, Jesus, okay? But I got to persevere at the gym sometimes. Just this past week or, yeah, this past week or two weeks ago, I was uh, on a, I, my, my work, workout week is Monday through Friday, my five days. I took off on the weekend. And I, uh, it was a Monday. Had a little case on the Mondays. On Monday afternoon, my, my son has his t-ball practice. It was like, it was six o'clock around dinner time. I was hungry. I had just gone to practice with him. I hadn't gone to the gym yet. So I was like, I was like, I was trying to justify not going to the gym. Well, I was on a baseball field. So it's, that is a place of athletic activity. I did walk. Um, I think I did throw a ball or two to my son. You know, it's like, does that count? But I was like, no, I am committed to this. Come on, I, I, I devoted myself. So I, 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 I made my, my pre-workout drink. I put on some Andy Mineo and some Lecrae. What you know about a little Andy Mineo and Lecrae? Come on. Coming in hot. Don't get me started. My, my secret crew, my, 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 I'm getting off topic, but I used to always want to be a rapper. Uh, and then I realized I had no skill, but I appreciate the game. So um, I think I'd love to be Andy Mineo's in Lecrae's hype man. You know, the hype man is like the perfect activity because you don't have to have any skill. You just say, yeah, you know, like, I want to be that guy where you just walk around the stage, you're like, yeah. You know, it's like, that's the guy. He's the brilliant one. So, sorry. That wasn't my notes. It's not the Bible either. So, sorry. So, I put on Andy Minnie and Lecrae, and I was like, let's get it. And I went to the gym, crushed my workout. I didn't feel like it, but I was glad I did it. Can I tell you, if you would be honest with me in the room, there are mornings you don't feel like praying. There are weeks you don't feel like reading the Bible. That's okay. But can I tell you? Do it anyway. Can I tell you, you'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. In fact, even doing a self-assessment. In fact, I'll often ask people, they're telling me, hey, I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety or, hey, I'm, I'm really stressed. I'll often ask, and not saying this is the only solution because we believe in Jesus and therapy and medication. We believe in all that. But I always ask first, how's your time in the word and how's your time with God? Because if that's not right, it doesn't matter what else we do. You can spend $1,000 with a therapist, but, but the Bible says he gives a peace that's beyond all understanding. That his peace actually guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, the same Christ that defeated death. So, so having that, so, so hold, hold unswervingly, hold unswervingly, and devote yourself. And it says, he who is promised is faithful, the, the author of Hebrews says. Do you know why, as, as a follower of Christ, we, we should remain faithful to God? It's because he is faithful to us. He's faithful when we're faithless. He's good to you when you're disobedient. He is a good God, and what he does is good. I had this moment this week where I was thinking about how good God is because I had uh, I'd come home one, one day from the, from the gym. I was about to cook dinner, and um, I had in my mind, you ever, anybody else, you, you, you have unspoken expectations, and then you are upset that nobody read your mind? right? You're like, I had these expectations, and you did not meet them. So I had these expectations in my mind that when I came home, like, I'm cooking dinner, kids get a bath, we have dinner at a certain time. Well, Christina did not read my mind, and she was having this, like, beautiful time with my kids playing Legos, but I was getting frustrated because I was like, 
there's, there's some certain things I want to, uh, we need to do at a certain time that I haven't told you, but I want you to read my mind. So I was getting frustrated. So, but I, but, so then she went upstairs, put the kids in the bath, and then I am uh, cooking dinner. And, the, and all of a sudden, I thought it was the Lord. I began to, to think about how good Christina is, how patient she is with me, how caring and compassionate she is with the kids. Like, I, I'm going to think of all these qualities about her that I loved her. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was going to allow this momentary frustration to distract me from how good she is. Can I say, if you're not careful, the enemy will do that with you, with God. Do not allow a momentary frustration to distract you from his eternal faithfulness. Can I give you a practice I do? I did this this week even. If you have a frustration, maybe, an, maybe a prayer unanswered, maybe an expectation not met, just begin to thank God for the simple things. God, thank you there's breath in my lungs today. Thank you I got kids I have to feed this morning. Thank you I have a job I get to go to. Thank you I have gas in my car, especially this week. Come on, somebody. Thank you. Thank you. Begin to thank him for things. Then you realize, God, you are so good to me. You are better than I deserve. You are more faithful than I'm even worthy of. He's better than you than you deserve. He is. He's better to me than I deserve. He is a good God, and what he does is good. Thank him this week. If you're having a hard day, begin thanking him for the basic things. Then you realize, God, you are so good. Because the enemy loves to take a little, a little frustration. And he wants to throw you off course. Get you frustrated and stressed out about something that in the grand scheme of life is really insignificant. Ruth 117, she goes on to say this, where you die, I will die to Naomi, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. So she, she was faithful to God, and then she commits herself to Naomi. She clung to her. Let me give some context. I already told you, mother-in-law's do not like their daughter-in-laws, even though she clung to her. Also, the reason Naomi was so insistent on telling her and, and Orpha, like, hey, go, like, leave me. The reason she was so insistent, it's because Naomi was embarrassed that she had Moabite daughter-in-laws. Racial and ethnic prejudice and discrimination was real then. She didn't want to be associated with her own daughter-in-laws because of their race. And, and so she, she wanted them to go, but Ruth clung to her. Not only that, but Naomi was in poverty. She had no husband, so no physical security. And she was in an emotional, like, discouraging place. She was bitter. So Naomi had nothing to give Ruth. And again, it would have been culturally acceptable for, for Ruth to say, peace. Like, have a great life. But she clung to her. She was devoted to her. And you know what we see in Ruth's life? That we see all throughout the New Testament is the importance of remaining devoted to God's people. Acts 2.42, the early church, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship. Uh, that word devoted is that same word in the Colossians 4.2, to be steadfast and persevere. To, to be committed intensely to fellowship. That we see throughout the New Testament that in Scripture, there's this commitment God calls us to, not just to him, but to his church. Mind you, if you look at Jesus, that Jesus did not just call his disciples to himself. He had 12 disciples for a reason. He had, from the beginning, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he told them to go gather together in the upper room. 
Can I tell you that what we do as a church when we gather together, when we worship Christ, the church has been doing since its inception. In fact, it was its first activity was to gather and to pray, to worship. This is what the church does. And the scripture encourages us to be devoted. The author of Hebrews, right after he says, hold on swervingly to the faith, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Do you know that the purpose, one of the purposes of gathering together for worship is not just, yes, corporate worship, primary, but also because we need encouragement in loving good deeds. The other day I was taking my son to practice, and he didn't want to go. Um, which I was like, I mean, I understand. You know, who likes practice? Um, I didn't tell him that. Uh, but I was like, son, like, you, you are a, a, you're, you're a t-ball player on a team. This is what you do as a part of a team. And here's the incredible part. He didn't, he didn't want to go to practice, but he has, when he first started, his fielding was, was a little rough in t-ball. I mean, no, he's t-ball, but high expectations. No. Um, <laughs> Can I tell you, his fielding has gotten, like, like, significantly better. When he has gone to practice with his team, he has grown in his skill. Here's what the scripture says. When we gather as the church, we encourage each other to love better. We encourage each other to then we leave here to go serve our world in a significant way. There's a purpose to this. And then it says devoted to fellowship. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. Now, when I grew up, my church had a fellowship hall. Anybody else growing up in church had a fellowship hall? We had fellowship. That's where we went. We had fried chicken and banana pudding. Um, it's not in the scriptures, but very heavenly. Not good for my waist. So, um, but that's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is not even just hanging out. That word fellowship means to contribute or to share with one another. The very essence and nature of the Christian community is that we're giving. We're caring for each other. We're praying with each other. We're serving one another. We're giving to one another. If you read Acts 2 and 4, the Bible says there were no needs in the church. There were no needs. Why? Because they were in fellowship with one another. Can I tell you, can I, can I call us something that, that's, that's God's vision for the church? That, that, that God is actually calling us to something higher as the church of Jesus. Because this community of people, Acts 2, were in Rome, a culture very opposed to the ways of Jesus. And they turned Rome inside out in the name of Jesus and saw miracles and signs and wonders. The oppressed and marginalized were cared for. People came to faith in Christ. They transformed Rome. Why? Because they were devoted if we're not careful, we can approach church like we do a restaurant. Hear my heart. And we can say, what's in this for me? And, and, and you should have a church that you feel like is this is where God's called me to and I can get fed and grow spiritually. But listen, we're not called to sit and just receive a meal. You're called to get up and wait tables. You're called to serve your fellow brothers and sisters. What? Remember, the number one metaphor for the church in Scripture is the family of God. This is past week. I was having a conversation with my, my kids because they were, my two older ones were complaining about cleaning up mess. They're like, we didn't make this mess. Abby did. And I said, but that's what family does. Like, your dad doesn't love doing dishes. 
It may look like he does. Your boy don't love him. But I love you. And I do it for you. We do this as family. Can I tell you, listen, can I, can I challenge you? Listen, if you're just kicking the tires, you're new to Catalyst, tune this out. But if you're, this is your home church. Here's my question for you. Are you involved in koinonia? Are you serving each other, caring for one another, praying for each other, being generous? You know why? Because that devotion forwards the mission of Jesus. And that's what we're about. Amen? It got quiet. I'll move on. Number two, selfless love of others. She had a steadfast faithfulness to God and to God's people. Number two, she had a selfless love of others. Chapter two, verse two. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up some leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, reading this the first time, they think this isn't that big of a deal. She's asking, can she go pick some grain? But let me give context. Again, she is a Moabite widow. And in that culture, they known that widows had no husband i.e. they had no physical security. So they would take advantage of widows all the time. Um, so people would like wait, like, and, and they, would, they would, those who were marginalized or vulnerable, they would oppress them by, by robbing them, by attacking them. So she literally was putting her life on the line to go get barley for Naomi, a woman who was embarrassed by her. We see this selflessness in Ruth. That she just, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and do this for you. I'm going to put my life on the line for you. Reminds me of what Paul said to the church of Galatia in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. See, what was happening in Galatia was some of them were coming to faith in Christ, and they were almost viewing grace as like cheap grace. Like, oh, well, God loves me. God forgives me. So I can keep doing what I want to do because he'll forgive me for what I've done. Some of us at some point, myself included in my past, lived like that. But we treat the grace of God as if it's this, this cheap commodity. It may have been free to us, but it was paid for with the blood and the body of Jesus. So Paul says, listen, you've been set free. You have hope. You've been saved, not just to go enjoy yourself. No, you're called to serve one another humbly. Why? Because there are other people who need the freedom that you have. Can I encourage you? That's why, that's why we, we all, as a church, that when we, we approach life, is we, we, as Paul said in Philippians 2, we, we consider others interests above our own. Listen, you need, there, is, there is importance of, of taking care of yourself. We love each other as well. We love ourselves to love yourself and take care of yourself. But let me just, can I, can I give a, a challenge to a, a, a culture of self-care? If our self-care prevents us from selfless service, we have become, become too self-focused. And we have a culture that promotes lots of self-care. But can I tell you what we are called to? As Paul said, we use our freedom in Christ to humbly serve each other in love. Here's how it practically can look like, because it can feel overwhelming to think this. It's to, it's to simply consider others in your life. I saw it the other day. I was on a plane, and uh, there was a, a new family, new baby, newborn on the flight. And mom and dad, like dad was in the back, mom was in the front, and uh, Dad was kind of going back and forth, at, and we, were, we hadn't taken off yet. 
he was like bringing different things, holding the baby. Baby was fussy. And the, this man who was sitting across the aisle from the mom, and it was preferred seating. You know the seating you pay like $29 more for, uh, for extra leg room? Um, it's like, thanks a lot, Delta, you know. Um, <laughs> sorry, work for Delta. We love you. Um, it just wasn't worth it. Um, so this man says to the, to the husband, um, sir, would you like my seat? And the dad was like, no, listen, I'm at the way back. Come on, the seat next to the bathroom. Come on, so that's the worst seat on the plane. Um, you get that seat, like, Lord, deliver me. Let a free seat be up there, and I'm going to hit once they close that door. Um, and the man was like, no, 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 please. I want you to be close to your, your wife and your child. That, that's what selflessness looks like. Yesterday, we were having, a, on Saturday mornings, we have like a family brunch, and um, quick breakfast with the kids, and, and we sit down. So we're at the end of our brunch, and all of a sudden, Judah, my five-year-old son, he gets up, and he starts to pick up everyone's plate and take it to the trash. I break out my iPhone, because I'm like, I need to record this. This is a miracle of God. <laughs> I'm like, something nice, you don't even pick up your own plate. <laughs> I'm like, in Jesus' name, keep doing this. <laughs> I'm going to show him that tonight. Look what you did yesterday. Again, in Jesus' name, right? But I was like, that, that's simply what it is. It's like going home tonight and thinking to yourself, man, what would bless my spouse tonight? What would bless my roommate tonight? Tomorrow at work, not just thinking of how this benefits you or thinking about your perspective, but, but thinking about somebody else in your workplace. Considering your neighbor, considering those around, just simply just consider the others around you. That's what selflessness looks like. And then we see a little bit later in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth then, uh, she is going to glean in the field, and she gleans in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is an important person. I'll explain why. Boaz was a wealthy landowner. He was uh, a native there in Bethlehem. Um, In fact, he was related to Elimelech, Naomi's um, uh, husband who had passed. And he sees Ruth, and he had heard about her faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Naomi. So he says, listen, you can glean from my field. So he provides for her. And then he tells his, his men who works for him, protect her. Like, let no one put a hand on her. So he provides for her and he protects her. He then invites her to come have a meal. Uh, and they eat. And the scriptures say that, that at this point, Ruth was satisfied. She had had enough to eat. But then what, what's, what's powerful in verse 17, it says this, that Ruth, and she got up and she gleaned in the field until evening. So she, after she was satisfied, she then went and gleaned the field. She threshed the barley she had gathered. And then it says in verse 18, she carried it back into the town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So I want you to catch this. Ruth was already satisfied. Like she already had enough for herself. But she went ahead and gathered more for her mother-in-law. She went above and beyond to be generous again to someone who has not returned the favor. Reminds you what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 to the church of Corinth. He says, you will be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. And when we take the gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Verse 12, so two good things will result in the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God 
for the generosity to them and to all the believers and prove that you were obedient to the good news of Christ. Paul says to the church at Corinth, like, listen, that when you are generous, we're able to meet tangible needs, but also people can give glory to Christ. And then he says something powerful. He says, when you are generous, you're being obedient to the good news of Jesus. What's the good news of Jesus? So God so loved the world that he gave. The very essence and nature of the gospel is to give. Therefore, when you give, you are, you are being obedient to the good news of Jesus. That's why Jesus said you either serve God or you serve money. You can't serve us both. Why? Because he understood that if you're going to be obedient to the gospel, it, it involves a life of generosity. And let me just give you a little bit of a stretch your thinking if, if you're thinking just solely around resources or finances. Because he says always be generous. And yes, you should be generous. The scripture is very clear on that. Bringing the tithe to God's house, giving charitable causes. But can I, can I stretch a little bit further? Not just be generous with your finances. Be generous with your life. Like, be generous with your time. Be generous with your attention. Be generous with the gifts that God's given you. Ask, reflect on yourself. Am I a generous person? If you want to even be really challenged, ask people close to you. Like, who, who will be honest with you? Not, like, be like, oh, yeah, you're generous. You're a great person. Like, not that person. Like, the person who will be like, yeah, you were pretty terrible yesterday. You know, like, you want that person. Um, in fact, I think you all should have somebody in your life who will tell it to you straight. You all need somebody who is unimpressed with you. If you have no one in your life who is unimpressed with you, you are missing out on life. You need someone who will tell you exactly what the reality is. Because I have found those voices are so valuable in life. Ask that person, am I a generous person? And they might be like, no, you're kind of stingy. You know? Or they might be like, yeah, you are. But someone... There's a need you, you, you know, ask people why. Because we're called to, why? Because God will enrich you on every occasion. Do you know also what I love? I love when, when psychosocial research affirms what God's word already says. There was a, art, a journal in 2020, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. They did a study in August of last year. Two groups of people gave them both $5. One group, they said, go and spend this on yourself before 5 p.m. The other group, go and spend it on somebody else or to a charitable to calls before 5 p.m. They came back and did these, these uh, self-assessments of happiness and contentment. Here's what they found. Those who spent the money on themselves had no discernible difference in happiness. Those who spent it on others had a statistical difference in their rating of happiness. Another study found that those, after they received their year-end bonus, those who gave their, or did not, who spent their bonus on themselves no matter what amount of money they received, there was no discernible difference in happiness. Those who gave a portion of their bonus away, there was. Why? Because you were created in the image of a generous God. And you were created to be generous. We are more fulfilled when we live open-handed like Ruth. Here's a last and final point, last characteristic. So we have steadfast faithfulness to God and to God's people, selfless love of others, and lastly, a sacrificial obedience to God. Ruth 3, verse 2, now Boaz 
with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. We'll get to that. People are like, what is happening right now? The Bible is interesting. Read it. Read it. I'm telling you. He will tell you what to do. What? No. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything, everything, everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So to give context, in that culture, if you were to uncover someone's feet, you were expressing your desire to be married to them. That's what it was. Because if you can stand the sight and smell of their feet, then you can spend your life with them. I made that up, but that, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Some of you get married, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know about this. <laughs> um, so, but she uncovered his feet, and, and here's why this is significant. Um, there's, there's, there's three things she was risking. Number one was her reputation. Uh, no, women did not do this. A woman in that culture would never express this openly, I want you to be my husband. It was always the leading of the man. So one, that could have, could have looked negatively upon her character, and Boaz could have then decided, you know what, I don't think you're the one for me. Because up until this point, they'd already kind of drawn closer together. Number two, um, he could have, so looked badly upon her character, he could have rejected her been like, no. And then she would have been in this kind of hard place because he was her source of provision and protection, and now he rejected her. Thirdly was this, and probably the biggest risk. And the reason she says, uh, I think in the scripture it goes back, it says, you know, to go at night and to go quietly, it's because if others, if other Israelites would have saw her uncovering his feet, knowing what that meant, again, they could have attacked her, robbed her, done whatever to her because that that would have been offensive to a lot of the Israelites, a Moabite woman to be this forward with Boaz, a very wealthy Israelite. Uh, So she was risking multiple things this moment, like her reputation, her relationship with Boaz, and ultimately, ultimately her life. But she did it. She did it. She trusted in God. And I had this thought, you know, why, why was it that she was she, she took this risk of her life, and she said, whatever you tell me to do to, to, to Naomi, I'm going to do. And here's the thought I had as I, as I was putting the pieces together. You know, the best way, this is a side note, the best way you can interpret Scripture is with Scripture. So if you're ever wondering, what's this verse mean? Look at other Scriptures to understand the Scripture. Um, but if you look at the entirety of this, this book, that Ruth, I was like, why was Ruth so confident? Why was she so confident to say, hey, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Whatever you want me to risk, I'll risk. My life, I'll risk it. My reputation, I'll risk it. My future with Boaz, I'll risk it. My protection, I'll risk it. My provision, I'll risk it. Whatever you want, I'll risk it. And here's what I had. Because I was thinking on a very practical level for us here and there, here and now. That today when we leave here, probably most of us in this room will either be getting into a vehicle riding on the metro, or some sort of Uber or public transportation, or walking home. And by doing so, you are taking an inherent risk, aren't you? Like your vehicle could just act crazy, somebody else could act crazy, 
Come on, on May 16, 2021, you could run out of gas. Come on, somebody. Um, and, and then if you're walking home, you're trusting that other cars won't swerve off and somebody won't be looking at their phone and run on the sidewalk. Uh, if you're on the metro, you're trusting in a, in a metro operator. But here's a thought I had. Most of us in this room probably are not going to leave here and consciously be thinking about the risk that we're taking. Here's why. Here's why. Familiarity, familiarity builds trust, and it changes the way you view a risk. Let me bring it into here. Ruth had seen the faithfulness of God. Ruth had saw God was faithful when I was a Moabite widow living in poverty and I pledged my faithfulness to him, and he provided for me and protected me through, with Boaz. She probably heard stories like last week of how Abraham and Sarah were childless, but God promised a child, and they were faithful, and God was faithful. She probably heard stories of how God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, and then Moses, this man who lived in fear, who even struggled to speak, led the Israelites across the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted. She had heard stories of Joshua who took after, over after Moses, who then led the Israelites through the Jordan River at flood stage and then marched around the walls of Jericho, the promised land, seven times in silence and then gave a praise to the Lord and the walls came down. And I think, interpreting scripture with scripture, perhaps Ruth was saying the same God that was faithful to Abraham will be faithful faithful to me. The same God who was faithful with Moses will be faithful to me. The same God who parted the Jordan River will be faithful to me. The same God who took down the walls of Jericho will be faithful to me. She was recalling upon the faithfulness of God, and I don't think she even saw it as a risk. Yes, I'll risk my life because you're faithful. Yes, I'll be extravagantly generous because you're faithful. Yes, I'll selflessly serve a woman who despises me because you're faithful, God. You are more faithful than I deserve. You are better than what I deserve, God. Listen. As the people of God, God has been better than, to you than you deserve. You know why I know that? Because you're here right now. Because you're able to watch via a device. He's better to you than you deserve. He's been more faithful to you than you even realize. So when you read a scripture, you're like, ooh. I don't know about that one. I don't know if I can forgive what that person did to me. I don't know if I can... I can be kind to this person. I, I don't know if I can be pure in this relationship. I, I, I don't know if I, can, if I can be generous like you're asking me to be. God, I don't know if I can do what you're calling me to do. Can I encourage you pastorally? Reflect upon the faithfulness of God through generation upon generation. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a reason because he's a generational God. He's been faithful through the years. Get around some people of faith in this room. Get around some people of faith online and begin to hear stories of God's faithfulness, how God healed somebody, how God restored someone's marriage, how God provided financially for someone, how God gave them that job, and get around people who have stories and testimonies of the faithfulness of our God, and then you'll say, what do you want me to do, Jesus? I'll do it. 
It's like Joshua, when the Jordan River's at flood stage. At flood stage, he steps in. At flood stage. It did not part until he stepped. Some of you have not seen the true, all of the goodness of God. You've seen a lot of it. But there's even more he wants to give you because some of you, God has spoken something to you. Some of you know there's a word in his book, the Bible, that you haven't done yet in your life, that you're disobeying and you've justified your disobedience. And if you would just say, God, I trust you even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to do it even though it doesn't feel good. Can I tell you, just like Jordan River parted for Joshua, just like God came through for Ruth, God will come through for you. Don't, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. And what we see at the end of, end of Ruth 4, Ruth 4, it says, verse 13, so Boaz, what happened? Fast forward. Boaz responded kindly. He became, he decided to Ruth to be her husband. And he became what's known as a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. He redeemed their land. I think I mentioned earlier that, that a, a wife, when her husband died, she would lose their property. And they needed someone who could have the wealth to buy the property to redeem it back. Naomi and Ruth were living in poverty. They could not buy the property back. Boaz became the kinsman redeemer. He, he, he went ahead and he married Ruth. We'll see here. And he redeemed their property. Verse 13, he took Ruth to become his, she became his wife. And hold on, go back to 13 real quick. I don't know if I read all that. And when he made love to her, don't tell me the Bible's uninteresting. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And here's the powerful thing, okay? Well, I'm going to end with this, about Ruth's faithfulness and Ruth's, and, and Ruth's obedience and God's goodness and God's faithfulness, how even when it seems like your obedience and what God's asking you to do, or, or, or it seems so insignificant, so unimportant, like who am I and what is this? Can I tell you, here's the powerful thing. Here's Ruth, a poor Moabite widow who was faithful to God and faithful to Naomi. And through her faithfulness, watch what God did. She gave birth to a son named Obed. Why is Obed important? Obed was the father of Jesse. Why is Jesse important? Jesse is the father of King David. And from the lineage of King David came the king of all kings, King Jesus. Because of Ruth's faithfulness, King Jesus came into the earth. Listen, whatever God's calling you to do, don't ever underestimate the value and significance of what he's doing because you see the here and now, but he is a God of generations. And your faithfulness today will lead blessings generations from now. Trust in God. He is good and what he does is good. He's been faithful to you. Be faithful to him. Let's pray, church.